Well, if you're new to Village Church, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, a weird thing happened uh, to my voice this morning, so I can't guarantee you anything. I was 100% fine. I got in the car at 7.55, and it was gone. Like, just, I could barely speak. And uh, so anyways, it's slowly coming back, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. So go with me here, and if my voice goes in and out, it's, it's an adventure for me too. Um, uh, open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 26. We are finishing actually our three-week series on the life of Isaac this morning, Genesis 26. Um, but before we do that, I want to actually bring you up to speed on a prayer need that we have. Um, many of you know, if you don't, um, you'll find out in a moment. Uh, about two years ago, we planted a church in Carroll Stream, Village Church East, and uh, they're called East because until they finally get a permanent location, they're in that general direction. And so we're not trying to overstate where they're going to be permanently, but um, our dream is that they would land in Carroll Stream uh, permanently. But Pastor Craig is our church planning pastor, and they had their two-year anniversary um, two Sundays ago. And so I know, very cool, right? Sorry, I'm like, I should applaud that. I'm like telling you about a problem we have over there. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, it is beautiful and it is great. And uh, God's been really faithful. Uh, in fact, um, in terms of their, of their planting members, I mean, consider this, in two years, I think only one family has actually left the church and gone to another one. They say when you plant a church that 80 to 90% of your planting members are gone by the end of the first year. And so like we rejoice with them. But here's what happens Saturday night. Um, Craig gets sick in the bowels and uh, he's... Yeah, if you know Craig, he's like, I got it. It's going to be fine. I got it. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So, uh, so finally, he's like, this, this isn't happening. Nothing's going well here. It's been going for a couple days. And so I called one of their elders, John Rocky, who many of you know, former elder of Bartlett, now elder over there. And I said, John, you're preaching. And John says, oh, good. Here's Craig's notes. Good luck. Have at it. So, of course, John nailed it, preached his sermon. And uh, because John loves the word, he, could just, he just read this thing and, and fell in love with it. And so, uh, but we thought Craig would just kind of be on the upswing. And so by Thursday, he's in the ER. This has gone on for about a week or so. And, uh, and so he's getting fluids. And then they think he's on the upswing. And lo and behold, it went, I think, 12 days with no eating. Nothing stayed in his body. Multiple ER visits. So they finally did this test. And then they discern it's a parasite from some other place in the world, and so they give him antibiotics, and they think, all right, this is going to do it, and then uh, Friday morning at 4.30, they go to the ER, and he had these pains, I guess. Um, his wife says now he, she feels like he can relate to labor. Uh, ended up having a gallbladder attack, and then yesterday, they took out his gallbladder, and uh, he's eaten, I think, a cracker in over two weeks, you know, so just to give you a, a category, and Craig is a big, strong Canadian man, and so the Lord is just kind of humbling his body and putting him in his weakest. So um, we're going to throw some audibles at Bartlett. We're going to send a bunch of pastors over there to preach and to come alongside of them. But I want to take a minute and pray for Pastor Craig because I don't know if you've ever just been completely unable to do anything for two weeks, lack of sleep, you name it. Uh, so I want to pray for them. And uh, my heart just feels so bad for the guy. Um, I love him. He's such a good friend. And so I'm laughing because um, Craig and I just go back and I'm probably going to find ways to tease him about this for a long time. But he does need... Uh, he does need just help, and uh, he needs God to intervene and get this on the right track because he is, uh, A, doing well, but just struggling a ton physically. So I want to take a minute. I want to pray for Craig, and then uh, if you think about it, would you pray for him? Go on Facebook. Uh, there might be some needs. Uh, I'm going to ask their com- communications team at East um, what their actual food needs are, just general family needs, and so we may pass some of that um, on to you, depending on what they're able to do in-house. So if you see anything for them, um, let's just respond and care for them. Minimally, though, let's pray for Craig um, right now. Father... I thank you for Craig. I thank you for his friendship. And um, I thank you for just how faithful you have been to him and his family, how faithful you've been to Village Church East. Um, you love them, and you have just, you're just so good. 
I thank you that Craig um, is just grounded, and uh, I know he just so wants to be preaching your word. I know there's just that calling in his life to proclaim your goodness through teaching your word is just so heavy on him, but um, Lord, sometimes you allow stuff like this just to humble us or to teach us or um, even maybe sometimes just to show us how well loved we are and how well cared for we truly are. Whatever your reason is, I just pray for his body and his soul. Pray for his body that you bring him to healing, you would give him rest, you would give him the ability to sleep, and, and Lord, that you would give these doctors just the ability to get insight into really specifically what is going on. We live in the greatest technological age we've ever had. We can diagnose almost anything. I pray you would just help them make sure that they have clarity to what this is. Um, I pray for his soul. I know that when our bodies are struggling, it can be so discouraging. I pray you continue to encourage him, that your spirit would give him supernatural comfort and peace. And I pray for Beth, too, as she's taking care of her husband and working and taking care of four kids and all this crazy. Uh, God, I pray that truly the body of Christ would come alongside of them, that you would help us see those needs, uh, that your Holy Spirit would prompt us to pray, uh, that we would be attentive just, just to the needs of our brother and our sister and their family in Christ. So, um, Lord, we lift them up to you. Pray for Beth that you would give her energy. Um, thank you for her compassionate heart, um, how just um, amazing of a servant she is. Um, but I also pray that sometimes the, you know, we can serve and give everything we got, but I pray you would build her up and you, you'd surround her with um, especially women who would encourage her heart and encourage her and serve her. So Lord, we pray for them. We lift them up to you and I uh, can't wait to see Craig back in the pulpit, um, back serving, back to health. And we just are optimistic for that day in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Um, next week, Craig actually was supposed to be here preaching, and so we're just going to throw all of our preaching series and everything for a loop, so um, we're going to start actually next week a two-week series on worship, so I want to invite you back, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of the hiatus on um, Genesis, and then um, in, a, in a few weeks, we'll come back to the life of Jacob. All right, sound good? Genesis 26, open up your Bibles. I have a great idea for you. Um, I like to take boring situations, spice them up a little bit, um, make conversations more interesting. I want you to imagine you're with a couple, you're with some friends, and the conversation's all right. It's kind of, you know, could just use a little bit more energy. Here's a conversation starter for you guys. Uh, Look at um, your friends and say this. What are some ways your spouse is just like their parents? (laughs) it's one of my favorite conversation topics. So in your community groups this week, if you're involved in a community group, I'd love to read one of the questions. Uh, So we're just, we're going to, now here's the the challenge. Don't be a slanderer, just be nice, come on, all right. What are some funny and or not so funny habits, patterns, or tics you have inherited from your parents, or let's make it more interesting, that your children have inherited from you. <laughs> I want to be in every community group this week so badly. Now, I am, um, I believe I am smart enough to not speak um, negatively about my in-laws because my mother and father-in-law um, go to Village Church. And in the Sundays they're not here, they download the sermons, probably mostly to make sure I don't tell incriminating stories. But I will say this. My wife truly does have the vast majority of my mother and father-in-law's strengths. 
Uh, it's actually very interesting when I think about all the things that I just super respect and love about my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, which are so many. Um, my wife incarnates so many of these. I'll just give you a couple. Like, my mother-in-law is so creative, and my wife just incarnates this creativity. She is musical, and my wife incarnates this. My father-in-law is an incredible Bible teacher. My wife is just an incredible Bible teacher. My father-in-law has one of the best work ethics on the planet. My wife just takes this, and, and I could go on and on and on, but I see Mark and Sally all over her life. Uh, I see them in our children. I'm watching these habits and patterns and these strengths. Again, not speaking to any of the weaknesses. I see them all over my family's life. Yesterday, we were um, here at the egg packing party, and I was walking down the hall, and there was uh, a young mom and her mother. So I think the mom is in her early 30s, and the mother is older. So uh, I don't reference women's ages that are over 30. That's my flat rule. So the mother was older, but I was standing behind them, and I'm watching them walk down the hall, and their gait is identical. The way their hips move, their legs bent, their knees, everything. I was like, this is crazy. I'm watching and I'm like, is that inherited? Is this nature? Is it nurture? Like, what is actually happening here? In my family, my dad and I, we do not share similar temperaments. We do not share personalities. Uh, we're very different people. I'm much more like my mother. But my father and I have this, this one regular thing in common. We are what's called emotional eaters. And that means if we feel, we eat. If I'm happy, I eat. If I'm sad, I eat. If I'm anxious, I eat. If I'm laughing, I eat. So if I feel, I'm consuming food. So one of the most dangerous things in my life is a plate of food at a restaurant in front of me. Hear me, it doesn't matter if it's mine or yours. It's a true story. So like I'll finish eating and I know I'm at my caloric limit, I'm totally full, but conversations are happening and because I'm generally a present person, I'm feeling, like I'm empathizing, I'm listening, I'm just kind of like all there and whatever I'm doing and so I'm just mindlessly eating. 90% of the food I've eaten in my life has been mindless. I don't even know I consumed it and I'll look at my plate and it's gone and then my wife will say, where did my food go? And I'm like, I have literally no, no cognitive recollection whatsoever of where your food went, but the problem is it's just her and me, and there's no other culprit. It's, it's me. It's a problem. Which is why, <laughs> we'll just go deeper. Uh, my good friends at Village Church will regularly say to me, Michael, you're getting fat. Like, stop it. You know, like, go the other direction. It's a problem. Um, there is a very large man waiting to come out of me at any time. <laughs> We, we, we don't just pass on habits and patterns and ticks, right? Um, there are also some like sinful patterns um, that we have inherited and passed down, right? Uh, just looking at your, some of your faces right now, we see that as really clear. Um, there's an article written recently called These Bad Habits Are Really Easy to Inherit from Your Parents. Terrible title for an article, but here are some of them. Ineffective Ways of Managing Stress. And this article was rooted in a bunch of research where they basically said what you find is that parents tend to incarnate how their parents deal with stress, how they deal with anxiety, how they deal with worry, and that kids watch this, internalize it, and then inevitably repeat these patterns, unhealthy financial habits, um, that children often watch the financial habits of their parents. If they're positive, they tend to amplify those. If they're negative, they tend to amplify those. The inability to express yourself and your emotions. So if a child lives in a, in a home where the mother or father cannot articulate what's going on inside of them with clarity, oftentimes those are things that are developed uh, and taught by um, a mom or dad. 
poor communication skills, unhealthy relationship dynamics, which is why it is not uncommon uh, when you have a nagging wife, the daughter grows up to be a nagging wife, or when you have an abusive father, verbally, emotionally, whatever, the sons typically grow up to be abusive in some of the same ways. But the problem is that when our kids have it, whether it's a vice or a virtue, our kids tend to amplify what we did, right? We look at them and they're like, I was never that bad. Um, and possibly that's true, but this is, this is what happens. Um, not able to say, I'm sorry, that apparently even the ability to own something, to name it and own it, um, is taught first and foremost by moms and dads. Not being able to resolve conflict so that if you grew up in a home where conflict is regularly left unresolved, um, that you are more statistically likely to have habits and patterns in your life with unresolved conflict. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you um, uh, just a sentence that will help us frame one of the main principles in Genesis 26. And by the way, if you read the Bible, you're just going to see this principle all over the place. And if you look at your own personal life, for what it's worth, um, you're probably going to resonate pretty personally with this. It goes like this. There is a powerful magnetic attraction toward our parents' unrepented of and unnamed sins. There is a powerful magnetic attraction toward our parents' unrepented of and unnamed sins. I think you know this. I'll give you vocabulary, but I think inside you know this to be true. Um, There is a powerful spiritual dynamic and interchange between parents and kids. There's something very, very powerful about this relationship. Uh, They're made in our image and likeness, but they're also taking what they see and experience in our homes, and they're becoming those things. Uh, This is real, and it's measurable, and it's all around us. And and even just at the front end, uh, I'll I'll give you like a so what, just to kind of encourage some of your hearts. Um, What I'm about to share with you, I understand um, for many of you is going to leave you maybe with a lot of regret, um, but I also understand that um, until you know a clear pathway out of some of these things, um, you're probably going to continue to live in aimlessness when it comes to generational sin. So let's talk about overcoming generational sin just for a moment. Uh, There are really two stages of overcoming generational sin, and the first starts really with a mom and a dad if they're still alive. And if you are a mom or a dad or a grandma or grandpa and you're still alive, you do actually have a role to play in killing generational sins so that the children and the grandchildren uh, do not incarnate this and then amplify it. Um, Here's the hardest part, I think, about um, really being a mom and a dad uh, when it comes to my own sin. Naming it and confessing it specifically. We are pros at the generic apology. Amen? I am a blank. Name it. I struggle with... Name it. Now, here's the real challenge, is naming it even with biblical terminology. So, uh, for whatever reason, calling sin, sin is like super offensive nowadays. I don't totally get that. And I think in the church, we have to rise above that. And if we're prideful or greedy or lustful or, or uh, vengeful or vindictive or whatever the word is, I mean, I could probably help you figure out what the word is. And, and I think sometimes we try to just sterilize the words a little bit so that we don't have to feel as bad about it. I will say this over and over and over and over again. The mom and the dad who own their stuff and name it and apologize for it are a thousand times more respected than the ones who don't. It's interesting because the thing that most dads, I'm speaking as a dad because I am one, the thing I want is honor. But by not naming what we already all know is there, I lose it. 
that the very thing I want the most is gained by my children by actually naming it and confessing it specifically and then repenting. Now, does repentance mean perfection? The answer, please say no. No, like, like I have watched my mom and my dad go down a path of repentance in their life. My mom was a pro at this. She had the ability to name things specifically, express her remorse over those, and then put patterns in her life where things started to, to change. I've watched my mom and dad literally repent. I've watched both of them from a, from a kid experience come to Christ, understand the gospel, believe in Jesus, and then over multiple decades um, actually follow Jesus and change. It's beautiful to watch. And I'll tell you, like, I don't need my parents to be perfect, but I do want to know they have enough EQ to understand what they're struggling with, what we already all know is there, to name it. And then for us to be able to watch somebody grow in repentance is one of the most amazing things on the planet. Like your kids don't need a perfect mom and dad because that's a lie. They need to be able to see, like, okay, mom and dad struggles with anger, and so we're going to call it what it is. It's unrestrained anger. I'm also lacking self-control in this, and as a byproduct, I punish you for things I haven't dealt with. Like, that's hard to say, isn't it? And so we deal with it, and then when it comes up again, sometimes our kids might throw that back and say, oh, is this about really you dealing, taking your undealt with anger out on me? <laughs> you know, like, that's hard, but um, sometimes that's what needs to happen. I, I want to give you a second stage, because some of you don't have moms and dads are alive anymore, but I do think it is incumbent upon sons and daughters with grace, by the way, to, number one, name the sins that you see specifically. Now, it does not mean you call your mom and dad up and say, you're a jerk, here's what you did to me, and I hate you. Like, that... Like, sometimes, like, you don't have to go directly to them right away because you're too angry and you're going to sin in the process. But here's the deal. You already do this with your spouse anyways. You already do this with your friends, don't you? You talk about the ways that you're frustrated with your mom or your dad. Like, you've already identified these. But I think there's power in naming something so that thing that you name does not come back to you and try to control you. Repenting publicly for how you have repeated it. And so if you have repeated the sins of your mother and your father... You name it. And then maybe there's going to be some people, maybe your children, that you have to tell them to and just say, listen, um, I inherited this. This is not good or glorifying to God. And if I don't name it, my concern is you're going to take it, incarnate it, and then amplify it for the next generation. I want better for us. And then sons and daughters have to intentionally resist the magnetism. Now, here's the deal. The text today is about the negative side of this. There's a positive side too, Right? That's just not what we're talking about in the text. Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham was a great man on so many levels. Unfortunately, what's coming up in the text today is the negative side. So uh, what I want to do is encourage you. I want to give you the so what's maybe on the front end. Um, so if you fall asleep in the next, like, I don't know, three hours that we're going to preach, you'll be fine. So here's the so what. Um, open again, Genesis 26. Here's the uh, context. Abraham has a pretty incredible testimony, does he not? <laughs> this man has been so stupid for so many years. And... and all of this sin and faithlessness is all over the life of Isaac. Even his name means laughter, but it's not just ha-ha-ha laughter. It is a reminder of the time when Abraham literally fell on his face with doubting, mocking laughter to Yahweh when God told him his 90-year-old wife was going to have a baby. And so God basically said, the name of this son is going to be Isaac. So every time you say his name, you will never, ever, ever, ever doubt me again and laugh in my face and mock me. Uh, Isaac doesn't just mean like jovial laughter. It means doubting laughter in its its context. And so here's the question. Um, By the end of Abraham's life, he got more and more faithful. He started to deal with some of the sin issues of his past. But the question is, will Isaac repeat the failures of his dad? That's the question. So Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. 
Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now when you're in any kind of uh, a Gregorian culture like this, famines are going to be semi, semi-regular. Um, you'll remember in the book of Genesis, there have been a couple famines already. This is a new famine um, that we're dealing with. And here's what it says in verse 1. And Isaac went to Gerar. Just remember Gerar. And he went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Remember Abimelech. Gerar, Abimelech. Especially Abimelech. He's going to become a central character in what happens. Now, I want to just ask you an, a, a question uh, an introspection question. Have you, have you ever watched somebody that you love when they're not in a good place and you watch them go to certain places, relationships, or do certain things that you know when they do these things, they're not okay? Maybe they start drinking more and the moment you see that, you're like, no, 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 some, something isn't right here. Maybe they're dating girls you know they should never date. Like, they're not dating Christian girls anymore. You know, as soon as they go that direction, like, something is off inside of their soul. Maybe they're losing their temper more and more. You find them going off the edge and raging, and you're like, something is, something's broken here. Maybe they're hanging out with friends that they shouldn't hang out with. They stop hanging out with some of their Christian friends, and then what you find is the people they start spending time with. You know when your son or daughter starts hanging out with these people, some things are probably not okay in their life. And what you need to know about Gerar is this. Gerar in Genesis is where Abraham and his family go when they're not okay. Uh, this, is, this is not the first time Gerar has come up in the book of Genesis. And so Gerar is where you go to run from the promises of God. That's what Gerar is. So there's geographical movement south from Isaac, and he's going south, and, and he's going toward Egypt. But to get to Egypt, you have to go through Gerar. In verse 2, here's what the Lord says. The Lord's going to intervene, and the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, and he said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. If you go down to Egypt, the blessing of the promises isn't in Egypt. The only way you get the blessing is if you stay in the promised land. Don't go south. Don't go to Egypt. And then he says in verse 3, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For you and your, and your offspring, I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And I want you to just remember the story of Isaac, because you remember when Isaac is sitting there wrapped up, put on a, on, on, a, on a fire that is about to be lit, and his father raises a knife to slaughter him, and Jesus intervenes and fulfills his promise, and Abraham, at the end of the day, doesn't end up killing Isaac. Remember that? And Jesus shows up and says, stop, Abraham, I've got this. I'll provide a lamb. You know that whole story? Isaac knows personally that God always comes through in his promises, Right? God never fails. There's not one good promise of the Lord that God is not going to come, come through on. And so when God says to him, stay here, you don't need to go to Egypt, you don't need to go to Gerar, you don't need to go to all these other places, just stay here, this is where I'm going to bless you. If you go that direction, things aren't going to go well. Don't go there. You already have a family history in Gerar. Don't, don't go there. He says this, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I would give to your offspring all these lands. Like, this is just an analogy for me. The amount of people I plead with, because they're going to their metaphorical Egypt or Gerar, and, and I look at them, I'm like, if you go there, here's what's going to happen. The blessing of God is here, not there. If you go there, the blessing of God isn't there. If you stay here in the boundaries which the Lord has prepared for you, there's blessing here. Please don't go that direction. Bad things happen in that direction. And so the Lord is just reiterating the promises and the blessings, and he says in verse 4, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So here's the question. Is Isaac going to really trust God? And then here's what happens in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Come on, man. Really? It's the southern border of Canaan. It's a well-watered place. I get it. There's a famine. It's probably going to be one of the places where you feel like you, you can eat. Egypt is even better, uh, more fertile. There's always water near the Nile. I get it. Uh, I get it. I get it. And the Lord's like, listen, I get you're hungry. I get you're nervous. I get you're concerned. I get all of that. But listen to me. Despite the famine, the blessing is here. Desperate people do, what is it? Dumb things. Desperate people do dumb things. And he's desperate. And every time Abraham was desperate, what did he do? Dumb things. Again, I'm telling you, as we teach through Genesis, that's going to be a phrase that comes up over and over and over again. The Negev, Gerar, all of this place in the southern part of the promised land leading over down towards, towards Egypt, um, they're really not the ideal place for the man of God to go. I'll give you just three reasons. Number one is evil Canaanite kings. These are not places that you want to go to and stay alive very long. Number two is filthy, child-sacrificing, vile cultures of men and women who will, by and large, backstab you to take what you have. Like, that may sound crazy or extremist. This is not like high-class civilization. This is tribal cultures and warfare at their best. Number three, the reason the man of God doesn't want to go down there is because... Um, his father has already gone down there and messed so many things up. Let's just, I want to read this statement to you again, and then I want to go back a few chapters. All right. There's a powerful magnetic attraction toward our parents' unrepented of and unnamed sins. Turn in your Bibles. Go back six chapters, Genesis 20. I just want you to see this, and I want you to experience this, and it's going to make Genesis 26 that much more irritating. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, from there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in, where's the place? Gerar. Let's let's talk about Abraham for a moment. I I understand that there are um, so many pop culture ideas about Abraham and general sermons that you hear about Abraham, but let me tell you one thing that if you just read the text very meticulously and carefully and you pay attention to geography and what's happening, I, I want to tell you what happened. God had just promised Abraham that his wife is going to have a son, and the son is going to be the fulfillment of the promise, and that God is going to bless the entire world through this son. And so here's the next thing that Abraham does. He leaves and he goes to Gerar, knowing, hear me, exactly what will happen to his beautiful wife if he goes. So the Lord tells you, this woman, you're going to have a child through her. So he literally gets up and he leaves and he goes to Gerar and then watch what happens. And he does this knowing what they're going to do to his wife. It says this in verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, oh, she's my sister, Uh, not married, and who? Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Why did he even say that? Because he knows the kind of people that they are. Abraham had the promise of God. Hear me. He didn't want it. 
So he went to Gerar and functionally threw his wife away. That's what's happening. That's what makes this story so controversial and so ugly. It's not just the fact that he lied. It's when he lied, where he went, he knew who would be there, and he goes to Gerar when he's running away from God. And Abraham had a hard time with God to date. His life and his relationship with God had been up and down and left and right. The Lord had not met his expectations. He had shaken his fist at God probably a handful of times. And so finally the Lord says, this is the woman. You're going to have a kid with her. He says, let me just keep Ishmael. That's who I want, right? And so finally God says, no, this is the woman. And then he leaves. And he goes right to Gerar, knowing what's going to happen. Verse 3, Genesis 20 still says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you, Abimelech, are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech had no idea. And yet he has this first interaction with Yahweh. Imagine the first time you ever, ever interact with God, and his first words to, to you are, you're a dead man. And you're like, I, uh, what did I do? I have no idea. That woman, She's just a woman. Like, I'm following all the rules. That's another man's wife. Hold up. Why am I a dead man? Because that dude lied to me. Like, he should get in trouble. You should be calling up Abraham and saying, behold, you're a dead man. You're a deceiver. You made a promise and threw it away and came to me knowing what was going to happen. So Abraham goes to Gerar, and he goes to Gerar to run from the promises of God. Now go back to Genesis 26. Like father, like son. Genesis chapter 26, verse 7, when the men of this place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. This is where you shout through the pages of scripture and say, what are you doing, you moron? Please don't do this. You know better. Like, like, this is so typical. This is so typical. You ever watch your kids and they incarnate your sin? And isn't it so ugly when they do it? Isaac knows better. Why did he do it? Verse 7 says this. For he feared. Like father. Like son. Why are you even Gerar in the first place, man? Don't go there. You know this. Nothing good happens in Gerar. Here's what you don't know. What you don't know is that before Abraham died, Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And they entered into a lifelong relationship, a promise of peace. And here comes Abraham's son. And Abimelech, I'm sure, just cannot believe it. Your dad and I are in a covenant relationship, and you're going to walk in here and do the same thing to me that your dad did? I'm sorry, who do you think you are? Verse 7 goes on, for he said, for for he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah. By the way, why why did him and his dad have this fear? Because this is what they do. Like These are tribal communities of which you and I have no ability to understand. So when we hear like king, like in our brains we're like the king of England or somebody with a big robe and crowns, like these are tribal communities that are just not like anything you or I have probably ever experienced. He says, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because Rebecca, because Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. What's really frustrating about this is, is I just want to go back five verses. If you go to Genesis 26, verse 2, God had just made a promise to him. Like, I'm literally, like God is saying, I'm, I'm literally going to make everything work out for you. 
You're going to have everything you need. Don't leave. I know there's a famine. It's fine. You'll get through it. I'll take care of you. I'll provide. Like, don't just relax. And remember in verse 2, here's what he says. The Lord appeared to him and said, don't go to Egypt. Gerar is on the way to Egypt. Stop that direction. Don't go south. Dwell in the land, which I will tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Like, I watch people, and I'm just like, don't go there. The Lord's already been, like, he's already promised to be faithful to you. He's for you. Like, I understand you're desperate, but like, your desperation, you have to rise above that because as the people of God, we're just not a desperate people. This is not who we are. Like, we experience desperation, but then the word of God, the promises of God, they, they, they overshadow our desperation because those are the things that are more true. And yet here we are, and, and again, don't raise your hand, but if I said, raise your hand if you've ever walked away from the promises of God, all of us would throw our hands up, both of them, and say, if we had 100,000 more hands, we still, you know, this is just what we do. And so we read this, and I'm like, Isaac, you're so stupid. And the Lord's like, no, Michael, you're so stupid. Like, you're, this is you. This is you. This is your heart. This is your struggle. Like, you're no better. When you're desperate, you do dumb things. And, and, and it's very hard to read that. Verse 8 says, when he had been there a long time, I love that, a long time. How long is a long time? I have no idea, but it's not a short time, so it's a long time. <laughs> Abimelech, king of the Philistines, you, 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 this is a little bit of Hebrew is going to be just fun for you, okay? He looks out of a window, and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Okay, what's, what does the name Isaac mean? Laughter. So here's what, he, here's what he sees. He sees Isaac, it's supposed to be verb, sorry. He sees laughter, laughing with Rebekah, his wife. And it's interesting, because immediately he's like, wait a minute, they're laughing, they're enjoying each other a little bit too intimately for a brother-sister relationship. And, and, and here's, what, here's what the author wants you to get. This is some of the poetic, beautiful Hebrew side of the narrative here. Uh, the laughing of Isaac, it's not just laughter, ha-ha. Here's what, here's what you could translate this as. So Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw doubting laughter, laughing. Verse 9 goes on and says, So Abimelech called Isaac, called doubting laughter, and said, Behold, she's your wife. Ha, <laughs> I got you. Right? Like, man, I've seen this trick before, by the way. <laughs> Clever Abimelech. How, could, how then could you say she's my sister? Doubting laughter said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech says, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Why is Abimelech saying this? Abimelech has had a personal encounter with Yahweh, and here's what Abimelech knows. That God will strike me down. Thank you, Matt. That God will strike me down. That God has no patience. That God is loyal and fiercely loyal to his people. And so why would you ever put me in a place to mess with your God? He is more powerful than all of our gods. I can't even believe that you would do this to us. Verse 11, so Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. I want to close with a few so what's. I want to ask you a question. I gave you just a challenge. What are your ancestors' generational sins? Name them. Confess them. <laughs> and I put repent often of them because repentance of generational sins is rarely a one-time event, right? These things are like glue. They just stick to us. 
They're all over us. And so this is one of the, one of the first challenges I want to come before you and say, we watch all throughout Scripture the sins of the Father are passed down. Some people think this is like a, a spiritual curse. I don't understand the dynamics all the time, but I just know that we see it and we watch it. But I also know that any generation can stop it. Any generation with the Holy Spirit of God can draw a line in the sand and say, this ends here. But if you're going to be the line that, if you're going to be the generation that draws a line in the sand, it's going to take an incredible amount of intentional work. Because these things stick to us. They stick hard. And then they, they just want to transfer. It's like burrs. You know those stupid burrs you get in your clothes? That's what generational sins are like. And you've got to pluck them off and pluck them off. And then they pull out. It's like, ugh. And then you throw them on the ground. And then your kids lay on them. And they get them all over. By the way, don't throw them on the ground. I've learned this. We have these plants in our backyard. they got burrs on them. And then I pluck them off. And my kids get them all over them. And I'm like, why do these things stick? Why are they so dumb? God, why did you make this? Was this evil? I think so. You all know burrs, right? They're super annoying. <laughs> Where is your garar? Where do you go? Who do you run to? What is the thing, the person, the place, or the thing that you run to to avoid the promises of God? When you're desperate and you look at meeting your desperate need or trusting in God, where's the garar that you run to? Learn to name it. Get really familiar with it because it will not be improbable that your children will run to the same place. And if you're not able to identify with clarity what your garar is, you will not see it as quickly as you need to when the next generation rises up under you and they run to the same garar. Number three, this is going to sound a little random, but I need you to watch what happens in this text. May we not mistake personal prosperity with God's approval. Because sometimes when you run to Gerar, you get rich. And just because you get rich doesn't mean that God approves of what you've done. Look what happens in verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land, reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord actually, he's the one who prospered him. And the man Isaac became rich. It's interesting here. There's a, there's a tension in this text that, that for generations and millennia, people have tried to read. They're like, he shouldn't have gone there. He shouldn't have been in this place. And maybe some of the question here is, okay, so did Isaac leave the area of Gerar and just kind of settle on the outskirts of it and he kept his distance? Did he do this writing? There's questions, but no matter how you slice it, the blessing is from God, yes, because God promised to bless him despite his faithlessness. But he didn't bless him because he went there and lied to Abimelech and then gave him his wife. That's not why he got the blessing. And sometimes you can end up running from God and things can be good and do good and feel good for a while. The two are not always connected. And what's interesting in the book of Genesis is that so often the blessings of God come in the aftermath of faithlessness to prove that the character of God is not one who is faithful only when we're faithful. And so this is, just a, this is a subtle warning in the text that I want to draw your attention to. And then finally, number four. May we become the people of faith and overcomers we were redeemed to be. You go down to verse 24 and verse 25. I love this part. The Lord appeared to him the same night and he said to him, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. And I love how he speaks right into his desperation. And he says this, fear not. 
that thing that makes you so desperate to do dumb things, like you got to kill that because I am with you. And we've said this also a hundred times. You haven't noticed the same themes come up and up and up in the book of Genesis, and apparently the Lord needs us to hear the same exhortations over and over again. Whenever God says, I'm with you, it's not because he's sending you into something easy. It's because he's sending you into something that's impossibly difficult. And so if the Lord ever shows up on your doorstep and he says, I'm with you, you're like, oh no, it's going to get really terrible really fast, and I might even die in the process. Like that, that's the Lord's way of saying, like, welcome to a new, very difficult future. And I get all of the little things inside of you that are going to want to emerge and rise up. But, like, I, I need you to hear this. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be desperate. All the, all, all the insecurity and the what-ifs and all the anxiety and the worry inside of you. Like, like, you need to release this now because I am with you. And I will bless you. And this is where God goes to Isaac and he reiterate, reiterates the promise he made to him. Okay? Now, God did not make this promise to prosper you financially to you. Amen? Amen? So shyster preachers, when they open up the Bible and they take promises made to specific Old Testament saints about money and prosperity and health and wealth and they apply them to everybody, they don't know what they're talking about. They need to like, do better Bible study because they just want your money. So fear not. For I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And, and this is actually, it seems to be the moment in Isaac's life where he just takes this whole relationship with God personally. So he built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and he pitches his tent there. I love this. This is who we're created to be. We're created to be overcomers. We're created to be people who see the desperation. We name it. And if we don't name it, I love this. The Lord just names it for him. He's like, it's fear. That's your problem. You're afraid. You're afraid I won't provide. You're afraid you're going to die. You're afraid of this. You're afraid of that. You don't need to be afraid. I get it. Everything I'm asking you to do is really hard. I get it. So I'm just going to call it on the table for you. I'm going to give it a name for you. It's fear. That's what makes you desperate. You can release that now. That's not how I made you to be. I didn't make you to be fearful. I made you to be an overcomer. I made you to be somebody who trusted me. Because by the way, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. And I will never let you down. And I will never, ever, ever leave you or your soul desperate. I will always be with you. My spirit, I think the Lord can look at us and say, my spirit will always be with you. And yes, it will be hard. Life is hard. Following God is hard. Not following God is hard. Everything is hard. But I'd rather have a hard life with the Lord Jesus Christ than a hard life apart from him. And so whatever your desperation is, whatever your garar is, whatever your uh, sins that you're just inheriting and repeating, like, like, the Lord is so good. The Lord is so good. And this has been something in my family that I've tried really hard to be able to look at and name some things. And, and it's interesting because I felt like, personally, I've done a lot of work between um, my parents. My parents have been really, really great about naming and owning specific things. And, and that's been a pretty healing process between my parents and I, even though they're, they're incredible parents, to be honest. Like, like the best parents in the world are going to have to name specific sins, right? Uh, it doesn't mean you're a bad parent because you do that. But my greater concern is actually for how the struggles of my wife and I are getting translated to our children. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's very interesting how, you, how easily you can struggle with sin when it's just you and her or you and him. But then when you watch your children repeat the same things that have been maybe unattended in your life, it's one of the most convicting and sanctifying things. And so I, I'm kind of emerging into this life stage where I'm having to identify not the things with my parents, but actually the things in me so that I can name them and identify them and repent of them in front of my children Otherwise, it's going to be like a bird that just sticks to them, and it's just going to get more and more damage done to them if we don't tend to it. 
I don't know where your place is. I don't know what the Lord's doing in your heart right now, uh, but here's what I do know. Uh, I don't care what you've gone through. I don't care what you've been through. Whatever has been done to you, there is nothing that you cannot overcome through faith in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing. So this is what I love about being a Christian. Like sometimes people come to church and they're like, I know you just want me to trust in Christ. Can I, all right, there's a million reasons if you're not a Christian right now that I want you to trust in Christ. A million billion, right? Let me just tell you like one that sits at the top of my like brain here. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when you give your life to him, when you, when you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf, when you make that decision, okay, a couple things happen which are killer and amazing. Number one, all your sin is forgiven. That's so ridiculous, but it's awesome. Like, everything, are you kidding me? Every dumb thing I've ever done, everything I will do, you're telling me I will never be judged and condemned for those? Are you kidding me? Okay, that's awesome, great. Um, I'll take that. Um, heaven is yours. Wonderful. Like, so despite my stupidity, you're offering to me eternity? Uh, okay, yes. Everything that is, Jesus is his mind. Uh, I'm his brother. I, uh, we inherit uh, all uh, of the spiritual wealth of the Heavenly Father. We are sons and daughters of God. We're heirs of all of this amazingness. Awesome. Okay, I'll take that. Here's what I love right here, right now. You get the Holy Spirit of God who indwells in you personally, convicts you of sin, encourages you, builds you up, trains you, challenges you, helps you. It's literally God inside of you whose objective is to help you between now and the point of your death. And he resides in you and he is, he is just literally transforming you. And this is why we get to watch Christians morph and change slowly over many years because the Holy Spirit is your helper doing incredible things. And so when I, when I, when I think about trying to overcome generational sin without the power of the Holy Spirit, that stresses me out to the max. And so what God offers us is not just forgiveness and cleansing and future and hope and everything else, but he actually offers you himself who dwells in you permanently. You can never get rid of him. You're stuck with him everywhere you go. There he is transforming and changing you. And so I think a lot of people are really petrified to come to Christ because they've never, ever known the power of the Holy Spirit. They've never known what the Holy Spirit can actually do inside of a person who is broken and sinful. And I want to I just tell you from where I'm sitting it is unbelievably awesome to watch the power of the Holy Spirit and what he can do inside of a man or woman. And then we have a whole bunch of Christians who quench the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at you and say, I get it. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's difficult. I, I know that you're too prideful. You don't want to admit failure or wrongdoing. I get it. But I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit can help you to be humble and to own and to name literally what everyone already knows, what everybody already knows. And the blessing and the promise of named and owned and repented of sin, it is well, well worth the pain of repentance and confession. Well worth it. So if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, I just want to come before you. And uh, I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to try to convince you of anything because I can't. I want to offer you forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. If you are a Christian here and you have trusted in Christ, one of the ways that we end um, most all of our sermons is we come to the communion table. We come to this communion table as a reminder that our sins have been paid for. We also come to this table and it reminds us of all the benefits of salvation, one of which is the Holy Spirit. Without the shed blood of Christ in our behalf, without you placing your faith and trust in him, no Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit because of what happens here. And the Holy Spirit is God 
spirit in you to help you overcome and to become more like Jesus. You have literally God himself in you, empowering you to kill the sin in you so it doesn't pass on to the next generation. And so we do at Village Church as we run to the cross at the end of our sermons. Uh, you're not going to find Jesus in much of the book of Genesis per se. The name will never be there, although he shows up as the angel of the Lord. But we come to this place. We live on this side of the book of Genesis. We live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we run to the cross at the end of our sermons to say, listen, uh, these things are written for our, our encouragement. They're written for our training. But unless I have the Holy Spirit of God, it will just fall on a deaf heart. I will not be able to do anything with it. And so we run back to the cross at the end of our sermons uh, just as a way of saying, Lord, we need you. All the things your word shows us and tells us I'm powerless to accomplish on our own. Thank you for Christ. You might be visiting with us. You may be from a different church and uh, you might not know what to do with communion. Let me just tell you very simply how we do it. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are not relying on your own good works to get you to heaven, if you have trusted in the shed blood of Christ for your sins on your behalf, here's what I want to invite you to do. When we pass out these elements, would you take them and would you partake together with us? Because this is not about village church. This is about those who have personally trusted in Christ and are in the family of God. And so if that's where you're at, I want to encourage you. I want to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. And would you partake of communion with us? For those of you who have never trusted in Christ, uh, it's very interesting because I think that's one of the hardest parts of of a Sunday worship service is what do I do with communion? And here's what I I want to give you an encouragement. The elements are going to pass in a little while, and as the elements pass, I want to ask, would you not partake of communion? Uh, nobody will judge you, nobody will look down on you, but, but here's why we say this, because to take these elements, the Bible says that it's a proclamation or a declaration, that when we partake of communion, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're making a personal declaration that I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and if you're not there and you're not ready yet to trust in Christ, there's no reason to lie. But maybe, maybe, maybe today you're here and you just sense like you are ready to trust in Christ. Um, if that's where you're at, when these elements come by, take one and you're partaking. Let it be your first public declaration that you believe in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection on the cross for your behalf. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment. I want to pray over you and then we're going to have the band come up. We're going to, we're going to worship, and uh, we're going to have a, a time of silence before that. And uh, when we have that time of silence, I just want to give you the opportunity just to um, reflect and to, to pray and to let the Holy Spirit do whatever he has to do in your heart. So let's take a minute. Let's pray, and then uh, I'll give you a time of silence. Father, thank you, for, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for the opportunity for forgiveness. Thank you that we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be obedient enough, go to church enough. Salvation is not by good works, but by trusting in Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you for what the cross and communion symbolize and point us to. Thank you for the Holy Spirit for anybody who trusts in Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and all that come with it. Thank you for you. So Father, we love you, and I pray in this time of just silence, even your Holy Spirit would, would, just, would do what you do. Would you just minister to us, and, and whether it's conviction or encouragement, whatever it is, we, we open our heart and our mind to you and just say, Lord, would you, would you do what you do best? So Lord, we love you. We thank you for stories like Abraham and Isaac. I thank you for their failures that you published them. 
so that we can see these things and be instructed by them. So Lord, we love you. We just ask you to continue to form Christ in us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Let's take a moment of silence and just talk to God.